we will ignore this date. This is the uh, date of the time I last gave this lecture with a version of the notes that's still rendering properly. So I don't think much has changed since then. Um, so today's lecture is on time-resolved spectroscopy. It's a little different than what we've been discussing. Um, we've been discussing different forms of spectroscopy, absorption and emission spectroscopy, that allow you to differentiate between different chemicals in a material or different isotopes or different spectral lines um, and techniques that would improve the selectivity, um, the sensitivity and selectivity. So the ability to resolve uh, closely spaced features in a spectrum and the ability to observe those features when they're small and in the presence of some large background noise. Uh, what we'll talk about today is how to generate very short pulses of light, how to use those pulses of light uh, to measure things very rapidly. Um, and of course, this is exactly the opposite of trying to measure very fine temporal resolution. Right? Um, if, you have, if you have a very fine frequency resolution in an observation of a spectrum, so maybe you want to observe some fine spectral lines. Let's say in an absorption spectrum. Um, what does the narrow line width tell you about the lifetime of the state that you're measuring? Long lifetime. And so if you try to measure with finer and finer precision in frequency space, you're probing line widths that have longer and longer lifetimes, or you're requiring that your experiment integrate over those long lifetimes. And generally, finer and finer resolution requires longer and longer integration times. Uh, that's also the case for suppressing noise and trying to get rid of random noise. One way to do that is by averaging, and averaging over a long period of time is, is the most straightforward brute force method of reducing noise in an experiment. There are some experiments, though, where we need to measure dynamics of what's going on. So chemical reaction is one example. We saw plots last time in the uh, Raman spectra of different pharmaceuticals that we're mixing. And we wanted to observe how those uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, the relative ratio of the pharmaceuticals in some solution, or some chemical process where we're monitoring the uh, reactants and products using the spectra. And the plots I showed measured over several hours how those quantities were changing. What if you wanted to measure the diffusion of electrons and holes in a semiconductor? And this is a process that's occurring over the span of picoseconds. You need the ability to resolve uh, a snapshot of what's going on in a time shorter than the time scale that you're trying to measure. So for that, we need ultra-fast lasers, picosecond, femtosecond lasers, um, so very short pulses. But a short pulse in time means there's a large spread in energy. And a large spread in energy means our usual sort of thought process of how we conduct an experiment is a little bit different. If we think about, say, an absorption spectroscopy experiment, where we've got population in the ground state 
And we expect to uh, send in photons that correspond to an energy level jump. And by tuning that frequency, we expect to see absorption every time this energy level difference corresponds to the energy of a photon. Uh, we can do that, but if we're using ultra-fast pulses, the pulses, the temporal uh, width of the pulses will mean that their spread in energy is so large that we'll be simultaneously exciting all the upper states, essentially. So we won't have the resolution in frequency space to resolve fine structure. Rather, what we will need to do is um, find a way that we can um, distinguish our sample of interest. Maybe there is some ionization band up here. We can say, okay, if we pump with a high enough energy, we can ionize this sample. And we'll just count the number of ions uh, present after we send in our pulse. And that will be proportional to our concentration, our initial concentration of atoms. And that won't rely on um, measuring at what frequency they absorb, just that they absorb. It's an example of one of the changes that you have in an ultrafast experiment. So we're going to look at, uh, first, how to generate short pulses for use in uh, such experiments. Basically, categorize different types of lasers that you can buy off the shelf. So we understand the physical mechanisms that's responsible for generating short pulses. We'll talk about how you measure short pulses of radiation, because the temporal width of the pulses is going to become smaller than the response time of our photodetectors. So special techniques will be necessary for measuring uh, pulse width. And then we'll talk a little bit about some different measurements that you can do using short laser pulses. Okay, so uh, I've listed up here, uh, sort of going down in uh, pulse length, different mechanisms that can generate pulsed laser, well, laser pulses. Um, so at the top, we have sort of the simplest conceptual technique of how you generate a laser pulse. So whatever you have that's pumping your laser, you turn that on and off. So if it's a helium neon laser being pumped by some electrical discharge lamp. You turn on the electrical discharge, you turn it off, you only get lasing output when it's on. So there you go, you've got a pulsed laser. That is limited by how fast you can turn on and off your pump. And so typically doing that, the best you can do is something like a millisecond uh, pump uh, modulation. There are a, there's a technique that relies on some natural uh, instabilities in a laser cavity to produce shorter pulses uh, in a not very controlled fashion, so we won't spend much time on that. That's not very commonly used. Um, some of the more common techniques are Q-switching and mode-locking. So you may have heard the term a Q-switched laser or a mode-locked laser. We'll describe what those mean. Those are techniques that can give much shorter pulses, so nanosecond or femtosecond pulses. And so a femtosecond, you remember what a femto 10 to the minus 15. So what is the period of a light wave, typical optical frequency? Anyone know? How about the frequency? It's 
some, uh, frequencies are typically like 10 to the 14 hertz. Okay, so the wavelengths are on the order of a uh, femtosecond, or the periods. An optical period is on the order of a femtosecond. So pulses that are on the order of a femtosecond are really only like one optical cycle long. So that's really the limit of what you can consider an optical pulse to be. So different techniques for generating these uh, are all called mode locking, so we'll describe some of those. Um, okay, so um, a couple comments about modulating the pump of a laser. Uh, I'm going to draw a lot of curves that look something like this, where we've got uh, one curve. This blue one represents our pump power going into some lasing material. That produces a population inversion. So that population inversion is represented by this delta n. So that inversion builds up. And when it's large enough, when it uh, exceeds some threshold value drawn in the dotted line, then you can get more gain than you have loss. And when you have more gain than you have loss, you have lasing. And it will laze. That will take energy away from the material, reduce the population inversion to the point where the gain equals the loss. And then it's operating in the steady state. And the laser will operate in the steady state. As it does, you get the laser output. It's this red curve. Um, probably would have been more correct to show that laser output being constant over this, this time when the inversion is constant. But then as the pump is turned off, eventually this population inversion goes away. The rate at which it goes away is going to be given by the natural lifetime of the upper state. Or actually, yeah. Um, and then as the population inversion goes away, the laser output dies off. Um, and this is sort of what you'd have in an ideal laser, or at least a, uh, a typical laser that is uh, chosen to have the ideal properties of a material, um, mainly a fast, fast depletion of the lower laser level. So that means an energy level diagram. We have pumping, rapid decay to the upper lasing level, and we have lasing on the transition between the upper and lower level. And we want to have the lower laser level rapidly decay back down to the ground state. Why is that? Yeah, so you can maintain the inversion. Right? You need to have more population in the upper state than the lower state, so you want to get the population out of the lower state as quickly as possible. Um, if that's not the case, if you have a relatively long lower state population, then as the laser's operating, it will self-terminate. So you can build up a population inversion. The laser turns on. It drives population down into this lower state where it stays. And in the process, kills the inversion. The laser turns off by itself. Okay, so that's the diagram shown over here. We're now basically, as soon as the laser turns on, that drives down the population inversion, and it turns itself off by itself. So self-terminating laser. An example of such a laser is the nitrogen laser. 
And that can be used to produce short pulses. Right? It can turn itself off uh, rapidly. But again, I mentioned in the uh, previous slide that that time scale is typically from milliseconds to microseconds. So it's not what we'd consider ultra fast. Other mechanisms, a uh, similar mechanism here um, with long relaxation times in the upper and lower states, then you can get this transient behavior as you turn the laser on, uh, driving population down that destroys the inversion, laser turns off, the inversion builds back up. Um, so even with a continuous pulse or a continuous pump, you can get this uh, cyclical transient response. And these are called inversion oscillations. Each one of these is a narrow little pulse in time. And so that can be used to generate pulsed laser light. Uh, the problem with this is it's not uh, controllable. So this, uh, this represents the pulse for the pump that's driving this. And there's basically random fluctuations in the uh, pulse duration and uh, repetition rate. So not particularly suitable for a well-controlled experiment. Okay, so Q-switching is commonly used. Q-switching is a technique where the Q stands for quality factor. And the idea, again, is to manipulate the uh, population inversion in your material. So the material is sitting inside of a laser cavity. And so what we saw before uh, still applies, that as you pump, you get an inversion that increases. And when we call this the gain, the gain is proportional to the inversion. Once the gain exceeds the losses to the cavity, you expect it to start lasing. And the additional power going into the pumping, instead of going into increasing the gain, it goes into increasing the output power. Um, OK, so there are various applications where you need short pulses, not because you need temporal resolution, but because you need high peak power. And if you have, say, a one watt laser, you can either get out one joule per second every second, or you can compress all the energy into very short pulses and extract something on the order of a gigawatt in a nanosecond pulse. So a gigawatt in a nanosecond is one joule. And if you have one pulse per second, then you've still got a one watt laser that puts out a gigawatt of peak power. So that may be useful for various applications. Problem is, as you try to pump energy into the system, as soon as the gain exceeds the losses, it starts to laze. And you can no longer put energy into the system. It comes out in the output of the laser. But what you can do is crank up the losses. How might you increase the loss 
in a cavity. The round trip law. Okay, you could do that. Um, the problem with that is it's hard to change that dynamically. What's the easiest way you can do to produce 100% loss for the round trip light inside the cavity? You block it. Put a shutter in. You put a shutter in, the round trip losses are 100%. So, what would you expect this curve to look like then when you've got the losses cranked all the way up? Any power you put in is just going to go into increasing the inversion. So it's, the gain is going to get very large. It'll never become high enough to exceed the loss of the shutter. Assuming you have 100% loss. Eventually what will happen is the spontaneous decay from the upper state. Uh, once you have enough population there, the rate at which the energy is decaying will equal the rate at which you're pumping it in. But in the process, in order to get to that point, you have to end up with a lot of population in the upper state. So you have a large population inversion. And then what you do, you remove the shutter. And your new laser cavity has a low loss and has the gain way above threshold. And so what happens is it turns on. There's a ton of gain. All the power gets dumped out. Just like the self-terminating laser at that point. Only it's not, it's still self-terminating, but it's not, the gain isn't fluctuating on its own. It's fluctuating because you block the losses and then remove that shutter. And that pulse is typically on the order of a nanosecond. And because the energy it's extracting can be deposited into the laser cavity over time scales that are long, time scales on the order of the upper state lifetime, you can extract very high peak powers. And this is called Q-switching. Okay, so how does this operate in practice? The shutter has a variety of forms it can take. It can be something mechanical. And so one example is a rotating mirror. So a mirror that's rotating on axis, although it's not quite the same as a shutter blocking the cavity. It's only forming a cavity when the mirror is aligned. And if it's misaligned, then there's no round trip because the, the uh, rays don't, don't repeat. So it's only going to form a, uh, a stable cavity for a very fraction, very small fraction of its uh, 
round trip or it's uh, revolution time. So most of the time there is no cavity. For a very short period of time there's a stable cavity. That's when the power will get dumped out. Um, so that's still mechanical. There are faster methods using acousto-optic or electro-optic shutters. So these types of shutters are ones where there's a crystal and some voltage applied to the crystal that changes its optical properties. That, For example, can change, can rotate the polarization by 90 degrees so that light will pass or be blocked by a polarizer. And that combination of polarizer and modulator form a, uh, form a shutter. And that can be faster than a mechanical shutter because all you have to do is change a voltage, not move some mass around. So there's no inertia to deal with. And likewise, for acousto-optic effect, um, a piezoelectric transducer produces an acoustic wave that propagates down this crystal. The presence of that wave uh, diffracts light out of the cavity. And that can be turned on and off very rapidly by turning on and off this driving voltage. So those are a few mechanisms to produce this Q-switch behavior. And here's a plot that shows the, uh, the dynamics of what's going on in the laser cavity, the function of time. So we've got the gain building up as we pump the thing. And the losses are initially high. And there is some sort of uh, timer triggering the shutter to open up and make the losses low and then close again. And so it's doing this periodically. And what we see is uh, the first time the losses drop, there, and I don't know whether this is uh, an inaccuracy in the plot or whether it's just uh, not meant to show the exact uh, behavior, but if those losses drop below the gain, you'd expect to get output. Otherwise, you wouldn't. So I guess what I'm saying is, imagine the low loss level being right here. I think that would be a more accurate plot. So even though the shutter turns off, there's still too much loss. The gain hasn't built up enough. But by the time the shutter drops low again, the gain has continued to build up. It exceeds the losses. And now the laser turns on. We get this spike. That spike takes energy away from the material, so the gain goes down until it's less than the losses. And now the laser's turned off again and continues to build up. Here it builds up until the next time the trigger fires. And now it hasn't had as long to build up, so we get a different total output power. And eventually we'll settle into a, a pattern that repeats itself and is periodic so that the output power uh, remains roughly constant and the repetition rate roughly constant. And this is entirely controllable because you can control when the shutter opens and closes. So you can set the repetition rate um, and control how long the gain can build up. You can also do it passively using what's called a saturable absorber. And this is um, easier to implement 
and that there's all you have to do is take your regular laser and put one passive element into the cavity, but you have less control over the output. Let's go back to our laser. Here's our gain material. And we'll put in what's called a saturable absorber. And what that is, well, functionally, it's an optic whose loss depends on the input intensity. And as the intensity goes up, the loss decreases. And the way that works is, uh, imagine a two-level system. So in thermal equilibrium, the population is primarily in the lower level. And what happens now when we send in light that has the appropriate frequency to pump the upper level? What would you expect to happen? Absorption. Right. So we pump up, we get absorption. Now what happens if we turn up the intensity of the input? As we turn it up, we're going to get more and more absorption, right? At what point do we stop getting absorption? Yeah, so once we reach equilibrium between the upper state and the lower state, then we get as much absorption as we get gain, and the net effect is no more absorption. At that point, we say it's saturated. There's no more excess population in the bottom state to be pumped up to the top state. So it's, satur it's saturated, and it no longer absorbs. Hence the term saturable absorption, saturable absorber. OK, so uh, this provides large loss at low intensities. And so you can think about uh, this gain medium. It's pumped, starts to fluoresce. Some of those fluorescent photons are on the uh, optical axis of the cavity, but they're primarily absorbed by the saturable absorber. There's high loss. So they don't really resonate in the cavity. Um, but now imagine chance uh, an additional photon incident on the saturable absorber at the same time. That's going to have a little more transmission. And if that comes back and gets amplified, that gets more transmission and it saturates this. And it basically opens up the cavity itself. So the random fluctuations in the intensity here, if the saturable absorber is chosen properly and the gain is, reaches uh, the point where it's significant enough, then the peaks in the random fluctuations can lower the absorber absorption below the round trip gain and trigger an output pulse. And that's shown here. Uh, here we have the gain building up. We have the losses. No, they're no longer uh, externally modulated. They're now due to the saturable absorber. And when the gain becomes high enough, a uh, random event will trigger uh, the turn on of the laser. As the laser power builds up, 
that saturates the absorption, knocks it down, um, and the power is extracted, reducing the gain below the losses. The system resets. Okay, so that's called Q-switching. That's passive Q-switching here. This was active Q-switching. There is a related technique called cavity dumping, um, which is not commonly used. So I think I'm going to skip it. And focus more time on mode locking, which is the other technique that's used to get um, shorter and shorter laser pulses. Okay, so right now when we're talking about the duration of the pulse, uh, we're kind of thinking in the time domain as to um, how the gain changes as a function of time and um, how upper and lower state lifetimes are going to limit the, uh, the time over which we have an inversion or don't have an inversion. And that will affect the, the output pulse length. We can also think in terms of the frequency domain. Time and frequency are Fourier transform pairs. And so having a very short pulse requires having a very broad spectrum for the light. Okay, so in the frequency domain, if we think about what uh, the frequency spectrum of a typical laser would look like, a single mode laser, the ideal laser oftentimes is monochromatic, and plotted versus frequency, its output will be a single delta function. So I'm plotting here like output power versus frequency. Now that delta function has to exist somewhere under the gain profile of the lasing material. Right? That gain profile is the same as the absorption, the absorption profile. It's just when you have an inversion, instead of having absorption at those frequencies, you have gain. Okay, so this may be a Lorentzian profile. It may be Gaussian if it's Doppler broadened. But the width of this lasing profile is not what limits the width of the output of the laser. What limits the width of the output of a traditional laser? Okay, so let's say this this let's say this is the natural line width. And its width is gamma. Why is the output of the laser, as I've drawn it, why doesn't it just follow that? Why did I draw it as a delta function with a width that's narrower than that? This was a problem that a few people had to tackle in order to understand the homework a couple weeks ago with a carbon dioxide laser going into sulfur hexafluoride and broadening. There's a question about what's the, Doppler, what's the dominant broadening mechanism? And one, one of the common issues people had was What's causing the broadening, the sulfur hexafluoride or the carbon dioxide? And if you came to me and asked me questions about that or you looked online, I explained why the width of the output of a laser is not limited by the uh, gain profile of the underlying material. 
typically. Yeah. Okay, so this gain material may have a gain cross-section that looks like this. So this would be the gain. But it's sitting inside of a cavity, and the cavity will have a uh, transmission. That's periodic. What do we call the periodicity? Uh, well, these, spike, these spikes are called cavity modes. What do we call the separation of the cavity modes in frequency space? Yeah, the free spectral range. And then there's a line width. That's given by the uh, free spectral range over the finesse. So free spectral range is a function of the length of the cavity. The finesse is a function of the mirror reflectivities. And then the line width is determined by those, those quantities. And so if the transmission spectrum of the cavity looks like this, the gain material that's inside the cavity looks like this, you're not going to get output at all frequencies, only the frequencies that have high transmission. So you might see an output spectrum that looks like this. That's what we call a multi-mode laser. Multi-longitudinal mode. Or you might find that only so if the losses are high enough, but only one of those modes has a gain that exceeds the loss, then you would get only a single frequency that oscillates. Okay, so this width is limited by the cavity. So if there's a lot of uh, cavity modes oscillating, you might get something like this for your output spectrum. If there's only a single, you might see something like this. So two different ways to categorize a laser, or two different ways to categorize it, uh, are whether it's a single mode or multi-mode operation. Paul? This isn't drawn as carefully as it should be. Okay. Uh, it, would, it would tend to follow that shape. Um, what I was probably trying to denote, and did it in the wrong way, is that each one of these modes is independent of the other modes. You can think of it as a whole bunch of different lasers all operating at the same time with no correlation between them, minimal correlation between them. And so the phase of the light from here is uncorrelated to the phase here. And as a result, when we add them up, we get some temporal profile that sort of uh, has some amplitude noise on it. Best way to describe that.
if there were a fixed relationship between the phases, then this pattern would repeat. And there would be a time, if there were a time when all these different modes were in phase, they would add up constructively, you'd get a very large output electric field. And then at other times when they're out of phase, they would add up destructively and cancel out. So that method of making all those multi-modes have a fixed phase relationship, it's called mode locking. You're locking the phase of the modes to each other. And in so doing, you allow their coherent sum to become very large for a short period of time when they're all in phase. And since we're in the frequency domain, we can see that the greater the width of our uh, output spectrum, the shorter the time, uh, the temporal resolution, or the, the length of the pulse can be. So a delta function in frequency space means a CW laser. The delta function in frequency is infinite length in time for our laser pulse. So we don't have a pulse. We have a continuous wave. Um, but if we have modes that fill up this uh, gain bandwidth, then the temporal pulse will be limited by how wide that gain bandwidth is. A larger gain bandwidth leads to a shorter pulse. Does anybody remember what two types of lasers have large gain bandwidths? They were useful to us before because that meant we could tune, we could have a single frequency output that's tuned anywhere within that gain profile. Dye lasers and titanium sapphire. Yep. So those two lasers can also be used for very short pulses by having oscillations over that entire bandwidth at the same time. Okay, so mode locking is a technique that controls the phases of multiple modes to allow them to add coherently. Again, this can be done actively or passively, just as in Q-switching. The frequency spacing of these modes comes from the cavity. It's C over 2L. And so if you have um, a Fourier spectrum with structure every with periodic structure, uh, the periodicity will determine the repetition rate of that function. Okay, so the repetition rate is C over 2L. That's a frequency. Or the time between successive pulses is 2L over C. Okay, so we'll look at, again, active mode locking first, then we'll look at passive mode locking. And in order to understand the active mode locking, I can draw some pictures. I'll go through a little bit of math that explains some of the details. Okay, so much like we had before, let's put a modulator in here. So what this modulator is going to do is it's going to add a phase shift that's a function of time to the light. We call that a phase modulator. 
and I've got my gain material here, and my cavity. So the condition for resonance in the cavity is that I have to be able to fit an integer number of wavelengths inside the cavity. Now, if this phase modulator is causing the phase of the output light to change as a function of time, for a given cavity length, as I change the phase here, um, there's only one particular phase that will allow an inter- a given integer number of wavelengths to fit inside the cavity. And so as you adjust the phase of this modulator, you will scan through that point where it's resonant. Uh, an integer number in a round trip, half an integer in, in one, one pass. Okay, so what we generally want to do is um, sweep the phase through a point where it's resonant. When it's resonant, you can think of the light going around and coming back with the same phase as it started with. And then however long it takes the light to go around one round trip, we'd like to have our modulator be periodic in that same length of time. So that length of time is 2L over C. And that's just the round trip time for a photon in the, in the cavity. So if you do that, when the light comes back to the modulator, it's going to see the same phase. And the photons that are passing through the modulator at the time where it has the appropriate phase, so that, it, uh, so that a round trip is resonant, those photons will come back and still see the same phase. And every time around, they'll see the same phase and they'll resonate. But photons that are before it or behind it will see the modulator at different times when it adds a different amount of phase. And those uh, additional phase shifts will cause that light not to be resonant and not build up. And so what you'll get is just a single pulse that builds up and propagates through there. Every time that pulse comes to the output coupler, some of it leaks out. And what you have at the output is a train of pulses. Separated in time by 2L over C. And to understand that a little bit more uh, quantitatively, it's useful to look at what the modulator does. Okay, so if our laser field has magnitude E naught and is oscillating at frequency omega naught, the modulator will add a phase shift. So here's the phase shift. Um, this is the same form that the modulation in the homework had this week. There's some modulation depth and some frequency at which we're dithering the phase. And we'll use the trig expansion for the sum of two arguments. So we'll write this as uh, sine omega naught times sine of this term minus cosine omega naught times cosine of 
that modulation term. And now we'll use an expansion that sine of m sine of some function is the nth order Bessel function of that argument. So here's that mathematical expansion. Uh, there's a similar expansion for cosine of a sine. And that gives us a similar expression except with cosines. And And so if we look at these uh, expressions um, applied to this, this is the output electric field from our modulator. And we have the nth order Bessel function for um, argument x. x is m, the modulation depth. And then sine times the nth order, whatever the Bessel function number is, times the argument of the internal sine. So this theta is omega t, omega mt. And this term right here has an infinite number of uh, components to it. Each component has a certain magnitude and oscillates at a different frequency because of this n. So the largest order terms are going to be the one where n is smallest. Okay, so assuming that m is small compared to pi, then higher order Bessel functions will have smaller magnitudes. So we will look at the j equals 1, minus 1, and j, j0 terms. So the j0 term has cosine of 0. So this angle here is our modulation frequency. So if we multiply that by 0, um, the term in this expansion with n equals 0 represents no modulation. That's just our carrier. And then the terms with n equals 1 are going to oscillate at omega t. Omega m, the modulation frequency, relative to our laser. So that is shown here. Um, first, let's look over here. There's a blue line right here. This white line is the frequency axis. That blue line is a phaser that represents the electric field of our laser. It has a certain amplitude and a certain phase. That phase is oscillating at the laser frequency. But I'm viewing it in a reference frame that's also oscillating at the same frequency, or also rotating at the same frequency. So it appears stationary. Then relative to that, I have the plus 1 and the minus 1 components that are oscillating at the laser frequency plus modulation frequency and the laser frequency minus the modulation frequency. And because they're oscillating at different frequencies, they appear to be rotating in this reference frame that's fixed to the laser phaser. So one's rotating forwards at omega mt, one's rotating backwards at omega mt. 
And the vector sum of all three phasors gives me this dashed yellow line. That's the total output field. And so this one right here, where the output field is getting larger and smaller, represents amplitude modulation. So amplitude modulation can be thought of as your laser light with some sidebands imposed on it. And the phase of the sidebands is chosen such that when they're adding up together, they're also adding up with the main carrier. So in contrast, this diagram over here has the same magnitude for the laser and the two sidebands. But the sidebands, when they're in phase with each other, they're 90 degrees out of phase with the carrier. You see that? They line up when they're in the horizontal plane. And as a result, the vector sum is not changing to first order in length, but only is changing in angle. So we call this phase modulation. So this is phase modulation. This is amplitude modulation. If we have our phase modulator, this is what we're doing. We're taking the laser frequency, and the modulator itself is putting on sidebands. So just working backwards. If it's adjusting the phase with respect to time, that's equivalent to adding frequency sidebands. So starting with this, as the frequency spectrum of our laser, the modulator adds on sidebands. This is the frequency spectrum of the light after one pass through the modulator. When it comes around and passes through again, these sidebands now get sidebands put on them. The carrier also gets sidebands. And so now we increase the number of sidebands that are significant. And every pass through spreads out the uh, frequency spectrum further until we eventually have this forest of sidebands. Essentially, you can no longer tell uh, which frequency we started with. All the sidebands are equal magnitude. And if you look at what the Fourier transform of this power spectrum, this power spectrum, this power spectrum, that power spectrum looks like, starting with just a delta function, that's a continuous amplitude field. When we add on these sidebands, we get modulation. We get those sidebands uh, interfering constructively with the carrier at certain instances in time, when the power is peaked. And at times where they're not adding up constructively, they kind of wash out. And as we add more and more sidebands, that peak gets smaller and smaller, or narrower and narrower. So this is for five modes. I guess this is for 15 modes. Um, and you can get thousands of modes in very narrow temporal pulses out of this mode lock laser. OK, you can also passively mode lock the laser, again using a saturable absorber. Um, or using a, a particular nonlinear material called a care material. A care material is one that obeys care lensing, or the optical care effect. Um, without going into too much detail, what that does is it, it's a 
intensity-dependent index of refraction in the material. And so if you have a laser profile that is, say, Gaussian, when it goes into the material, it causes a gradient index lens. The center of the material sees a higher intensity, has its index change more than the outside of the material. And this window, this flat, flat window, behaves like a lens in the presence of a high-power Gaussian field. And so it can focus the light. And that's what's shown by this green line. Is this red line, is, this red curve is the, uh, represents the size of the beam coming into this material and then spreading out. And the green is the light being focused as it goes through this material. And the difference is uh, in how much power there is. At low power, where this uh, intensity difference is insignificant, uh, we'd see the laser beams spread out. And at high power, where that intensity difference is significant, this acts like a lens, focuses the light. And so this material can differentiate between a low power and a high power pulse. And if you put in a shutter here, or a, an iris that will only pass the focused light and not the unfocused light, you get a loss in your cavity that's dependent on the circulating intensity, just like a saturable absorber. So it's a different mechanism. It's the same functional uh, effect. High intensity uh, beam will pass through this device here with low loss. Low intensity beam will see high loss. And you put that into your, your laser cavity. And only uh, well, the most energetically favorable situation is to have a single pulse rattling back and forth through the cavity. Okay, because that will, uh, that will pass through this material with low loss. But then regions where there is not any optical intensity will get blocked. Um, and so again, if you think about the initial power inside of the cavities sort of being just random fluctuations due to spontaneous emission, the areas where there are peaks are going to see a little bit less loss than the regions where there are valleys. And so they'll get amplified a little bit. And eventually, as they get amplified, they see less and less loss. It's nonlinear. They build up, and you end up with a peak, a single spike. If you like, the front end of that spike produces a lens here. And the trailing edge of that spike gets focused down through the shutter. And that's how it circulates inside the otherwise lossy cavity. OK, so um, that's going to wrap up our discussion of how you generate the ultra-fast pulses. Now we'll focus on some of the details that you need to keep in mind when using ultra-fast pulses. Um, one of the issues you have is that as the pulse length becomes shorter and shorter in time, it has larger and larger frequency content to it. And so dispersion becomes important. Dispersion is different frequencies traveling with different velocities. So if you think about a short pulse traveling through air, Air is a material that has dispersion. All material has dispersion. 
And so after propagating some distance, some frequencies will have traveled further than others. So what started off as a very short pulse actually spreads out and becomes chirped. So chirped means the frequency varies as a function of time. So you can see that the, the color gradient here is intended to denote that the red frequencies are leading and the blue frequencies are trailing. So generating an ultra-short pulse doesn't guarantee that the pulse will be short by the time it gets to your experiments. You need to uh, take into account dispersion and oftentimes evacuate all the air and other materials from the path of the light. Um, so generally, removing as much material from the path of the light is important. It's important for dispersion. It's also important because the high peak powers in these short pulses can damage optics. Um, in air, high peak, pulse, high peak power pulses will cause arcing. You see sparks formed where the light is focused. And in materials, it can cause optical damage. Okay, so anytime you have something like a prism or a beam splitter with two pieces of glass that are normally glued together, the glue is usually the weak link there that can be damaged first, the most damage prone. So rather than traditional, say, cube beam splitters with two prisms glued together, uh, you would use something like an air-spaced prism. Okay, so I'm talking about a beam splitter that looks like this. You can buy them where there's a small air gap between them instead of glue. They're much more expensive. You can imagine there has to be some sort of housing to hold these two relative alignment. Um, any transmissive optic is a potential source of damage or a potential object that could get damaged. So we try to avoid transmissive optics. That means if you need to disperse light, angularly disperse light, instead of using prisms, you'd likely use a diffraction grating. If you have to focus light, rather than using traditional lenses, you might use curved mirrors, which can also focus or spread out light without the light actually passing through glass. You need to rotate the polarization. Rather than using wave plates, you might use a periscope to cause the light to bounce out of plane and physically rotate the transverse profile. And then there's a few sort of unconventional ways you should use things. Um, if you do use lenses, you should try to use diverging lenses rather than converging lenses. If you have, for example, a, a beam that you need to expand, a common way to do that is a pair of converging lenses separated by the sum of their focal lengths. Uh, what might be the problem with this geometry in a high peak power system as opposed to this geometry? Yeah, uh, basically, you'll get sparks here in the air where the light is focused down to a spot. Um, so you can avoid that by not focusing the light to a spot. Um, so a couple examples of uh, these high power options. If you look at any uh, optic supplier, this is CVI. They're a, a 
relatively common supplier of optics. You can find uh, like a list of beam splitters that they offer. So there's a plate beam splitter, a cube beam splitter, high energy cube beam splitter. Um, you click on that, you get specs for their high energy cube beam splitter. These differ from the regular cube beam splitters in that they have this air gap. Um, so you look here at the specs, it says, um, oh, here it is, optically contacted. So rather than have glue, it's actually an, an optical contact, meaning just physical contact of the two optical surfaces with no, no adhesive in between them. Um, we also see the damage threshold here. Five joules per centimeter squared. And that lists at 20 nanoseconds, 20 hertz. Okay, so they've tested this with pulses that are 20 nanoseconds long with a rep rate of 20 hertz. Would that likely be, what type of laser might produce that? Remember some of the numbers from earlier? Q-switching, yeah. Q-switching does nanosecond pulses. And the rep rate is determined by how, by the rate at which you turn the Q-switch on and off. Okay, for a mode lock laser, you might see this down to femtoseconds. Um, a mode lock laser could also operate at 20 nanoseconds. But what would the repetition rate be for a mode locked laser? Given by the time, there's one pulse just circulating back and forth continuously. So the rep rate is how long it takes, or the, the repetition time is how long it takes the pulse to circulate through the, print, through the laser. So light travels at a foot per nanosecond. So it's going to be on the, some, on the order of nanosecond rep rates for typical scale lasers. So gigahertz repetition rate. So this is clearly not a mode-locked laser. Um, here I show you know, the issue with converging lens versus a diverging lens. Lenses that you buy uh, typically are plano-convex. So converging lenses are typically plano-convex. It's a, it's a combination of economy. It's, these are two easy surfaces and cheap surfaces to produce versus uh, optimal image quality. So the optimal lens shape would actually have a slight curvature on one side, a much larger curvature on the other. So this plano-convex is a good uh, approximation to that. And if used in this manner, uh, any scattered light or reflected light off of this back surface will focus down to a point. You want to avoid uh, focusing to points. Uh, you might have a reason for focusing over here. Maybe that's where you have some sample. But you don't necessarily want your uh, system arcing here, optical damage caused in some element over here due to back reflection. Um, so you would always operate these lenses so that any accidental back reflection is spreading out, not focusing down, potentially damaging something in your system that is upstream of that. A couple other uh, 
devices you will commonly see in ultrafast experiments are called stretchers and compressors. These refer to what they do to a short pulse. So the idea is that a very short pulse with a high peak power is difficult to get through a bunch of optics because that high peak power can damage lots of stuff. So one of the things you can do is stretch out that pulse so that its energy is contained in a broader pulse with less peak power. And the idea is that this same energy but lower peak power pulse is easier to propagate through materials without damaging them. And then after going through the system, you can go through a compressor, which undoes what the stretcher did and compress it back to a short high energy pulse, short high peak power pulse. Okay, and so the way these work is um, a pair of gratings will take the input pulse, and because it's made up of many different frequency components, when it hits a grating, it will get spread out in space. Different frequencies will go in different directions. And another grating here, with the same angle as the original, will cause the light that diffraction this grating to propagate on along some common axis. So regardless of which frequency component you consider, they will all diffract at different angles, but then will come out propagating along the same axis. In the process, though, they've traveled different path lengths. So the path that's traveled the greatest distance, which would actually be the red one here, will acquire a greater phase shift, or a greater time delay, than the one that travels a more direct route. And so this narrow pulse gets stretched out and gets this frequency chirp on it. Um, what I've actually labeled up here is for the compressor. The compressor does the exact same thing with the opposite geometry. Um, so that the, the frequency-dependent delay introduced by the stretcher is compensated by the opposite frequency-dependent delay in this compressor. And so that takes this chirped pulse and it compresses it back to a, a narrow peak. If you're trying to get maximum peak power out, uh, one of the things you can do is once your pulse gets to high enough peak power that it's going to damage your laser material itself, you then send it through a stretcher that lowers the peak power. You can then amplify it back up to the damage threshold of your lasing material and then compress it. And what you have at the output is a pulse with a higher peak power than is possible to propagate through your lasing material. And you, once you've done that, you really can't send that light through any more optics. So usually you'd have any sort of any sort of optics in between the stretcher and the compressor. And then if you had some, say, target that you're trying to hit over here, you compress the pulse and hit, it, hit the target directly. Okay, so for example, at Lawrence Livermore, where they're trying to get fusion in the little deuterium pellet, this is the process that they're using. Very high peak power pulses are amplified up and then compressed and illuminate a little pellet from all directions and try to provide enough instantaneous energy to, to stimulate fusion, trigger fusion. OK, uh, we can talk a little bit about methods to detect 
short pulses. And then I think next time we'll talk about some different types of uh, experiments, that, things that you might observe using short, pulse, short pulses. Um, so when you have pulses that are very short, nanoseconds or faster, um, it becomes difficult to observe and measure how short the pulses actually are. Because most detectors that you would choose to use have response times that are on the order of nanoseconds or more. And so if you have a slow detector, you can't resolve the, uh, the shape of your pulse. Um, so we already saw when we talked about uh, detectors, a streak camera is one way to measure the shape of a very rapid, rapidly changing pulse. The idea was that your pulse has some temporal pulse width that you convert into some uh, spatial width on a display. That pulse hits a phosphorescent screen. Um, actually, not, I'm sorry. There's the phosphorescent screen. It hits a, a photocathode that emits electrons. The amount, number of electrons that it emits is proportional to the intensity of the pulse. So you end up with an intensity modulated electron beam where the modulation comes from the pulse shape. And then when that is accelerated across a voltage, um, either an external magnetic field or a time-varying electric field will uh, sweep the path that those electron bunch, that electron bunch takes across a phosphorescent screen, and it will draw out uh, this intensity modulation on the phosphorescent screen. So that's the streak camera. Um, another common device is called an autocorrelator. This is probably more commonly used for quantitative measurements of pulse length. And an autocorrelator uses a nonlinear element. A nonlinear element means that there's going to be two photons that need to interact in order to cause something to occur. And our light source gets split into two different paths. And those two paths get recombined. So this is just a Michelson interferometer. And the idea is that if the path length difference of the two paths is 0, the light from our source here will get recombined with no effect from the interferometer. But if there's a, uh, might be beam splitters drawn incorrectly. If there's a path length difference, such that the pulses get separated in time, then our output here is, is spread out in time. So what we have at this, uh, at this second harmonic device is an intensity that has uh, a contribution coming from the field in one direction and a contribution from the field in the other direction. And the purpose of the second harmonic generator here is that it will produce frequency doubling at a rate or at a power level that's proportional to the incident intensity squared. So it's nonlinear. It will produce more, it will have a greater effect in regions of high power than in regions of low power. Or we can say that there is a uh, an output that's proportional to the intensity that comes from light in one path 
times the intensity of the light in the other path. This gives us an intensity squared term. And by delaying the relative path length of one arm, we can introduce a time delay in one path relative to the other. Only when that time delay is short or small or close to zero will these two uh, intensity profiles both be present. And that's when uh, this second harmonic generator will produce second harmonic light, which is detected by our detector. So what we're measuring at this detector is not the light from our laser source, but it's the frequency doubled light from the second harmonic generator. And that's only going to be significant when these two mirrors are equal distance apart or within one uh, pulse length apart. So when the pulses overlap, the pulses coming from each mirror overlap, we'll get significant contribution. And so you can move the mirror back and forth and you move it, measure the power at this detector at the second harmonic frequency. And what you're measuring is this autocorrelation. And so the range of distances of which you move this mirror correspond to the physical length of the pulse. You move that over a micron and see the power at the detector build up and then go away. You know your pulse is on the order of a micron in length. Okay, so it converts the temporal measurement into a spatial measurement. Okay, so it doesn't, the autocorrelation function is not the same as the pulse shape. Um, what you would measure for the autocorrelation function uh, differs from the pulse shape. This is from Demtroder and this is wrong. This has a few errors in it. I'm looking at it, this doesn't make sense. But if you had, for example, a square wave, idealized uh, pulse, and you split it into two and recombine them, and you ask what's the overlap of those two square waves, you get zero. As you bring them together, that's what the autocorrelation is. As you bring them together and you ask what the overlap is, so we'll let this distance here be tau. If we plot the overlap this times this, When the leading edge of this one and the trailing edge of that one start to match up, we'll start to get a value for the overlap. It will build up and increase linearly as tau goes to zero. And the two are maximally overlapped. And beyond that time, the amount of overlap will decrease. And if this is delta t, then this is delta t. So in this case, the full with half max of this autocorrelation function uh, corresponds to the full with half max of your pulse. But for different shapes of pulses, you get different uh, numerical factors that relate the full with half max of this to the full with half max of that. And that's what's supposed to be shown in this uh, figure from Demtroder, but uh, 
pictures in the top row are supposed to be different than the pictures in the bottom row. One of these is supposed to be the, uh, the pull shape, and one is supposed to be the autocorrelation function. And they've actually drawn the same, same figures for both. OK, so uh, that's where we'll wrap up today. Next time, we'll talk a little bit about uh, spectroscopies in these short pulses. We'll have some time to review, because the following Monday is our next midterm. Um, I put up a homework that's due next Monday. So we had the same situation last time with the midterm, is that the homework was due on the day of the midterm. Since I'm going to hold you responsible for the content that's tested on the homework, if you want the solutions ahead of time, you can turn the homework into me ahead of time, and I will give you the solutions at the time you turn it in. Okay. The homework should be pretty straightforward. <laughs>